Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 6145 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onel Nzinzi, Tabiso Luhoko and Tami Kuza. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, France tables a draft resolution on Burundi at the UN. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma begins state visit to Germany and Somalia gets more support from the UN as it prepares for elections. In economics, Putumantlego takes over as MTN executive chairman and in sports news, South Africa's under-21 soccer team to play against Tanzania. But first up the news with Onilentzinzi. Thank you, Lulu. Looking at your news update. At least a dozen inmates and guards have been wounded during a riot at an overcrowded prison in Guinea's capital, Conakry. Hundreds of prisoners revolted on Monday against the prison governor, who is intensely disliked by the prison population. A government statement said the gunfire prompted a timely and vigorous response of the security services, adding that the situation is currently under control. The Strifeton Central African Republic says it is now in a position to hold planned elections on schedule over the coming months. French Defence Minister Jean-Yves Ledrian says the country is in a position to hold the first round before the end of the year and the second round early next year. His comments come as a new clash is erupted in the capital of Bangui between Muslims and members of a largely Christian militia. Outbreaks of violence in Bangui led to the cancellation of presidential and parliamentary polls scheduled for October 18. The Somali Islamist group Al-Shabaab has proclaimed its alliance to the Islamic State extremist group, posing the possibility of a renewed threat to the region. During a debate of the UN Security Council, Somali Prime Minister Omar Shamarke asked for the council's support to defeat Shabaab before it can gain considerable support from the Islamic State, which currently operates mainly in Syria and Iraq. The United Nations Security Council will consider imposing targeted sanctions on stakeholders in Burundi. France is circulating a legally binding draft resolution to put the pressure on the stakeholders in the country. Sherwin Price, Peace has more. The French draft resolution would be the toughest instrument considered by the Security Council to date as concerns grow that the violent escalation on the ground and incidents of hate speech from senior government officials could lead to a full-blown ethnically-based civil war. Russia has already indicated it did not have the appetite for sanctions but promised to work actively with both sides to find an approach that contributes to a political process and a peaceful settlement. 
The UN has also appointed a special advisor on conflict prevention, Jamal Benoma, who will coordinate the UN's response on Burundi. And finally, environmental group Greenpeace has called on South Africans to start to put pressure on government to take climate change seriously and invest in renewable energy. This says El Nino weather conditions affect many parts of the country, causing a drought. Some provinces have been declared disaster areas and water restrictions have been implemented. The group's environmental activist Melita Stiller says the government should also move away from fossil fuels. Burning coal, oil, gas that are actually trapping um, heat in the atmosphere, which is causing climate change. And so what we should be doing in South Africa is shifting our new investments away from coal and towards renewable energy and energy efficiency. And that's something that everybody in South Africa can get behind because it offers huge opportunities while also avoiding the worst impacts of climate change. Channel African News, I'm Onilinsinsi. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Onele. It's 8.05 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. France has ramped up the pressure on Burundian stakeholders with a Security Council draft resolution that warns the government to cooperate with regional mediation efforts and for all parties to reject violence. With tension escalating for a fear of returning to an ethnically-based civil war in the country. The draft warns of Council's intention to consider additional measures, including targeted sanctions, whose actions and statements impede the search for a peaceful solution. Show and Brasby's report. The 7,553rd meeting of the Security Council is called to order. After an urgent session of this council where UN officials again warned of a Burundi on the brink, France's Deputy Permanent Representative Alexis Lamec circulated what could be the firmest response from the UN body to date. In this draft resolution we call on all parties to reject violence and to convene an inter-Burundian dialogue. We welcome, we welcome the appointment of a special advisor by the Secretary General to coordinate UN efforts in response to the situation. We express our intention to consider additional measures, including targeted sanctions, against all Burundian actors whose actions and statements contribute to the persistence of violence and impede the search for a peaceful solution. But Russia's deputy permanent representative earlier shot down the idea of sanctions. Listen to Peter Lichev speaking on his way into the council. To work very actively with both sides. Well, with many sides, but not only with the government. We, we should find an approach that uh, contributes uh, to the political process, to a peaceful settlement. Can sanctions help? No. A question we raised with the French ambassador. With Russia's reluctance for punitive measures, what were the resolution's chances of success? This issue is currently discussed uh, among, uh, among member states. But the point, I think, which is important that, that we have to keep in mind, it is that this very idea, this notion of, uh, of, uh, of uh, targeted sanctions, the threat of targeted sanctions is something which has been raised by the African Union itself. And it comes actually from statements issued by the, by the uh, Peace and Security Council in Addis Ababa.
A council now threatening sanctions as a tool to force change on the ground, but without consensus here, the task of breaking the cycle of violence in Burundi could prove that much tougher. But as the High Commissioner for Human Rights, Zaidrad Al-Hussein, explained, it was critical for the country to remain at the top of the council's agenda. Recent inflammatory remarks by members of the government have suggested that this crisis, which has involved targeting people for their perceived political affiliations, could increasingly take on an ethnic uh, dimension. The President uh, of the Senate recently ordered local authorities to identify, and I quote, elements which are not in order, end quote, and to report them to the police for them to be dealt with. He also called on the police to get ready to finish the work. Uh, phrases such as these recall language that this region has heard before and should not be hearing again. Speaking via video link from Bujumbura, the country's foreign minister, Alenia Mitwe, played down the spreading violence and informed council that Burundi was in a general state of calm, except for a few hotspots in the capital. Contrary to certain information set around by radical opposition and some media, Burundi is not in flames. There are certain acts of crime uh, attempting to uh, attract the attention of the international community, but they are being reined in. As you know, security is the cornerstone of everything, because absent security, no development is possible. With diplomats here warning that the country may have reached a tipping point. Mind you, some have been saying that for months. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. From a failed state to a country that is coming together, that's how UN Special Representative Nicholas Kay has described Somalia. The envoy was addressing the Security Council, which on Monday unanimously agreed to give more international support to the country as it gears up for elections next year, while also confronting ongoing challenges such as terrorism. UN Radio's Deanne Penn reports. Mr. Kay told the Security Council that Somalia is well advanced in its transformation from failed state to recovering state. Somalia had been without a functioning government for more than two decades until an internationally backed regime was installed in 2012. Since then, there has been progress on the political front and in recovering territory from the terrorist group Al-Shabaab. In each of the emerging federal member states, there is a government, an assembly and an agreed charter. Increasingly, Somalis see government closer to them, more able to deliver for the people and to be held accountable by them. There is still a long way to go in terms of service delivery, rule of law and inclusive politics. But I shall never tire of saying that at last Somalia is facing the problems of a country coming together rather than falling apart. Although Somalia is pressing forward, the continued presence of al-Shabaab highlights its vulnerability. Prime Minister Omar Shamaki said the militant group's recent proclamation of allegiance to ISIS should not be taken lightly. That's why we need support of the Council more than ever before. To stand with Somalia against this terror network, to deny the ability to regroup or pose renewed threat in Somalia and the region. Resolution of the crisis in Yemen is crucial. Such will go a long way in keeping Al-Shabaab from accruing support from ISIS using Yemen as a conduit or launching pad. With this in mind, the Security Council has unanimously voted to increase UN support to Somalia, where an African Union force known as AMISOM is on the ground. 
The council meeting was chaired by United Kingdom Foreign Secretary Philip Hammond, who spoke to journalists afterwards. He said upcoming elections were just one reason why 2016 will be a critical year for Somalia. And it's also the year in which the federal government will have to show that its reforms of the Somalia National Army of the security sector can be effective and can, in due course,、uh, deliver a substitute for the current Amisom、uh, mission, which will have at some point. Uh, to come to an end. For the UN Secretary General, the best way to counter Somalia's terrorism challenges is to provide a better future for its citizens. His speech was delivered by Chef de Cabinet Susanna Malcora. That requires greater investments in community security, human rights, justice, and economic opportunity, especially for youth. We must denounce the propaganda of Al Shabaab. Address the grievances that drive recruitment, and open the way for all to renounce violence. UN Chef de Cabinet Susanna Malcora speaking on behalf of the Secretary General in the Security Council on Monday. Diane Penn, United Nations. Now, South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has arrived in Berlin in advance of his meeting with German Chancellor Angela Merkel. This is Zuma's first official state visit to Germany since he took office, and trade relations will be high on the agenda. Ira Spitzer reports from Berlin. President Zuma arrived into a wet Berlin, but his spirits will be far from dampened as he makes his state visit here. Germany is rolling out the red carpet for him, and when his meetings get underway fully today, he'll be greeted with full military honours. He's meeting with the German Chancellor Angela Merkel to discuss the deepening trade ties between the two countries. Rob Davies is the South African Trade Minister. What we're doing is.、Um Uh, bringing our business people together, we've、uh, put together a significant business delegation, which is engaged right now in a business forum.、Uh, and I think what will、uh, happen there is we'll find that、uh, the ex- the conversations that have already taken place between South African and German business people will be deepened and strengthened. And that's what we look to、uh, as a, an outcome here. There are over 600 German companies operating in South Africa, providing at least 100,000 jobs. It's a beneficial setup for both countries. But this visit won't only focus on trade relations. Jean-Christophe Horster is a senior research fellow at the Egmont Institute for Foreign Relations. Over the last months and years, Germany has more and more been openly criticizing the way the South African government and the ANC has been handling. Corruption issues, so trade is going to be very important, of course, but there are going to be、uh, more tricky issues on the agenda as well. The last time one of the leaders of these two countries made such a visit was when Angela Merkel visited former President Thabo Mbeki back in 2007. Back then, the Zimbabwe crisis was dominating the discussions. The German Chancellor Angela Merkel and South African President Jacob Zuma are holding their meetings at the Bundeskanzleramt in Berlin. They'll be hoping that these meetings won't only improve trade ties, but will secure the political relationship between the two countries into the future. Jack Parrick, Berlin. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet, and satellite. My name is Sipa Hotsticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist, for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa. 
the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Abari, etise, mache, mingabu, baoni, kedu, mbote, ndemne, bonsoir. Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. It's 17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A state of competition policy and enforcement in the developing countries will come under the spotlight this week. The Competition Commission of South Africa will host the fourth BRICS International Competition Conference in Durban. Competition Commissioner Tembinkosi Bonagele says many of the challenges facing growing economies are similar, such as markets concentration and weak sector regulators. Tepo Mungwai reports. Hundreds of delegates representing antitrust regulators and academics from BRICS and other countries are meeting in Durban this week. BRICS countries include Brazil, Russia, China, India and South Africa. Competition Commissioner Tembinko Sibonakele says most of BRICS countries are dominated by a strong culture of monopoly. You look at all the BRICS members, apartheid South Africa, the, the, the Soviet Union uh, and, and so on. All of these, China, these were all closed markets and so even India. Uh, the, the market reforms are relatively new. So the history we, we, we face might be coming from different political backgrounds, but the structure of the markets tend to be quite similar. Monopolies and large firms that tend to be, to be dominant. So abuse of dominance is one of the common features you find in many BRICS countries. The four-day deliberations will focus on a range of issues, including the impact of the growth of supermarket chains, Profits and market power, Bonagelle explains. So we want to learn how do they balance between these policy instruments. Um, another exciting uh, uh, panel is that of uh, poverty and competition. This is where we have uh, Joseph Stiglitz uh, coming uh, to, to talk to us about whether competition has got relevance in eradicating poverty, reducing inequality, and dealing with unemployment. So these are also some of the lessons we want to learn. 
The theme for this year's conference is competition and inclusive growth. I am Tsepo Mungwai in Durban. Countries around the world have a duty to protect the innocent and abolish the death penalty. That was the message brought to the heart of the UN by Kirk Bloodworth. On death row two years ago, for two years, he was the first prisoner to be exonerated thanks to DNA evidence more than 20 years ago. He was joined by a host of top officials and diplomats at UN headquarters in New York for the launch of a new edition of the book Moving Away from the Death Penalty. Matthew Wells was there. The UN bookshop was packed for the launch event that brought together the Assistant Secretary-General for Human Rights, seated next to the first American to escape death row thanks to DNA testing. There's no outright ban on the death penalty under international law, but for decades UN bodies and agencies have been urging member states to abolish it or suspend it, otherwise known as a moratorium. The guest of honour, UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon, has taken a deep personal interest in the cause, and he explained why. We need to fix a broken system. We need to abolish the death penalty. In my foreword to this book, I commend it especially to those who are not convinced. They, more than anyone, need to read these cogent arguments. I thank you for your commitment. Thank you. Kirk Bloodsworth, who faced execution in a US jail for a crime he did not commit, addressed Mr. Ban directly after he spoke. And I was remarking when I was listening to your remarks, sir, we cannot unexecute someone. That's it. It was the most horrible experience I ever felt in my life. And I've been doing this now for 22 years, 30 years. I will never stop, Mr. Secretary. Thank you very much for your... Despite being exonerated, the death penalty destroyed hope and compassion, he said. It infects the whole of society the world over. It's destroyed my life. I was supposed to be a fisherman. We kill people to say killing is wrong. That can't be right. As great as we are as nations, as people, cultures, religions, different feelings of life, one thing remains. The innocent should be protected. And if we can't do it, we shouldn't do it at all. And I look out over this on and say, what happened to me could happen to anybody. The UN human rights chief, Ivan Simonovich, said he'd been campaigning against the death penalty since he was a teenager. He outlined how far the UN had moved on the issue. It starts in 75, where we have 92% of member states executing. And in 2015, just 40 years later, we have 27%. So general trend is quite clear. There's no evidence, he said, that the death penalty deters crime. However, there is compelling evidence that uh, efficient sentencing and efficient uh, justice system do deter crime. But it's easier to appear to be tough on crime by using draconic measures and death penalty. Believe me, I know what I'm saying. I'm former Minister of Justice. Actually, my question first is what the leadership... How we can uh, create and generate and produce the leadership in those countries, those who are far away from this kind of things. One question from the audience came from former Pakistani MP turned religious rights campaigner Pervez Paul Rafiq. Following terrorist attacks, his country recently ended its moratorium on the death penalty. Mr Simonovic said this was a self-defeating move. Does uh, the death penalty deter terrorists? Is this logical? If people who are ready to blow themselves up 
Can they be scared by the death penalty? Just to the contrary, by executing, uh, you are transforming criminals into martyrs. Although state executions are down year on year, the number of death sentences passed went up. There is still a long way to go, advocates agreed, before capital punishment is a thing of the past. Matthew Wells, United Nations. Now today we ask you, do you think the death penalty has a place in a civilised society? Give us your thoughts and your views on email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Africa or at Channel Africa 1 or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Do you think the death penalty has a place in a civilised society? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The Green Climate Fund Board has approved funds amounting to 168 million US dollars for aid projects and programs kickstarting the flow of climate finance to developing countries. At the just-ended meeting held in Livingston, Zambia, the board decided on three projects from Africa. Channel Africa's Hilda Akekelo has more. Speaking to the media, GCF Executive Secretary Hela Chakrohu said the approved projects covering mitigation and adaptation measures are three in Africa, three in Asia, Pacific, and two in Latin America. She said of the three African projects, Malawi's proposal to scale up the use of modernized climate information and early warning systems has been allocated 12.3 million U.S. dollars. I'm happy to say that the Zambian and the first African meeting was tremendously successful because it had the first ever investments approved by the Green Climate Fund. Uh, There were eight investments approved, three of them are in Africa. Um, There is uh, climate services uh, and information investment in Malawi. There is uh, uh, desalinized land uh, treatment in uh, Senegal, and there is uh, a rollout of uh, rural renewable solutions for Eastern Africa. And Zambia's Finance Minister Alexander Chikwanda has commended the GCF, saying the funds will go a long way in supporting projects aimed at mitigating the effects of climate change in developing countries. Mr. Chikwanda was speaking after signing a 300,000 US dollar grant agreement with the GCF Executive Secretary that will go towards the acceleration of national preparation for climate financing. It is worth noting that decisions you will make during this board meeting will either enhance the outcomes of the 21st conference of the parties. For countries whose projects were not successful for funding, Mr. Crohu said the approval signals the beginning of the long-range financing and encourage Zambia and other developing countries not to lose heart. She said with climate finance being a critical element of global climate talks, the approval of the first project proposals marks a major trust-building measure between developing and developed countries. This is just the beginning. 
and it's a good beginning because it uh, allows all our partners, including Zambia, which is very active and is even a member of the board on behalf of the least developed countries, it allows all of our partners to know what the board wants and the type of investments the board is looking for. So that will accelerate the ability of countries like Zambia to bring forward their investment. And uh, we all heard the inspirational uh, talk by the Minister of Finance of Zambia, and we read with great interest the Zambian intended nationally determined contribution. Zambia has announced an ambitious uh, climate action plan, which will require us all to work together and provide finance. And one of the GCF co-chairpersons, Gabriel Acosta, said the first review of the project has been an enriching experience, one that allowed the board members a chance to reflect on the areas that need to be further enhanced to speed up support to countries that are already experiencing the devastating impacts of climate change. So you rightly quote the figure of $10 billion, which have been pledged, promised by the developed countries. Uh, and um, those promises have now been translated into agreements for, for uh, around $6 billion U.S. dollars. And uh, at this meeting, we uh, approved the first projects. So it will take some time before these first, six, uh, first 10 billion are spent. Uh, but already at this meeting, we had the first discussion about when to start mobilizing new resources to the fund. So that will not start immediately, but uh, because now we have enough money for the first uh, couple of years. But already in the coming two years, we will start planning the process for how to get more money for the fund. The second co-chair, Henrik Habo, said approving the first projects is an important milestone, particularly for GCF partnering countries and beneficiaries. Yeah, and, and for the case of, of middle-income developing countries, uh, such as Peru, that has committed uh, resources to the fund, we are, we are working trying to transform that in actual uh, funds going to, to GCF. It's uh, so a long trip. We have to do a lot, a lot of, of work convincing our Ministry of Finance to, to go after the commitment that our president had during COP20. During the Livingston sitting, the GCF board agreed to allocate up to 195 million US dollars to the future phases of the energy efficiency green bond program in Latin America and the Caribbean. The board also elected two new co-chairpersons, Mr. Ewin MacDonald of Australia and Mr. Zahir Fakir of South Africa for the forthcoming year. The Green Climate Fund, which was set up by 194 governments that are party to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, is mandated to help keep the planet's atmospheric temperature rise below 2 degrees Celsius. For this effort, it received pledges of approximately 10 billion US dollars last year of which more than half have been signed into contribution agreements. The 12th GCF board meeting scheduled for the first week of March next year will be held at the GCF headquarters in Sogno, Republic of Korea. Reporting for Channel Africa from Livingston in Zambia, I'm Hilda Akekelua. Our headlines up next with Onel Nzinzi.
Inmates and guards have been wounded during a riot at an overcrowded prison in Guinea's capital, Conakry. The Somali Islamist group Al-Shabaab pledges alliance to ISIS and environmental group Greenpeace calls on South Africans to put pressure on government to take climate change seriously and invest in renewable energy. Channel Africa News, I am Onelin Sinsi. Thank you, Onele. It is 8.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. South African Religion Watchdog Commission for Rights of Cultural, Religious and Linguistic Communities, the CRL, has summoned religious leaders to answer questions on the commercialization of religion. The hearings are to investigate the commercialization of religion and the abuse of people's beliefs after videos showing pastors from different churches making congregants drink petrol and eat snakes. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Professor David Musoma, Deputy Chairperson at the CRL. Good morning, Prof, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning to you, Lolo, and the listeners of Channel Africa. Now, Professor Musoma, can you tell us about these hearings and the objective of the hearings? First, the hearings have already commenced um, in Devon uh, some three weeks ago. Uh, the whole of last week and yesterday, um, we were in we are holding um, a number of uh, religious institutions, religious leaders across the board have appeared. Um, to share with us um, some of the concerns that the um, Commission is having in its uh, investigation on the commercialization of religion and also the abuse of the people belief systems. We are really on course. Um, There has been some serious um, agitation precisely because uh, the religious leaders have received uh, summons and these are not um, things that many religious people are aware of, and they think this is uh, not a good way of engaging them. But we've indicated that within the Act, this is what we, uh, it's a mechanism that we are using to invite uh, members for them to share with us um, on this particular investigation. And that receiving a someone does not mean you're guilty of anything, but you're just invited uh, through this uh, process for you to be able to give evidence which is actually expected uh, of, of the religious leaders. Now, uh, Prof... The aim of the... Okay. Sorry, Prof, go ahead. Okay. The purpose of the investigation, really, is to come to understand the religious environment in South Africa, the proliferation of, of religious institutions, the kinds of practices that are inherent in them, uh, of course, uh, the use of... Um, um, uh, petrols and, and uh, grass and snake eating and other practices uh, with regard to whether religion is on sale, um, the qualification of um, religious leaders, ordination, 
uh, who actually gave them the kinds of authority they are doing, uh, um, their registration, are they, in terms of the South African uh, law, are they registered as uh, uh, non-profit organizations? We want also to look at their finances, um, because those constitute good governance. Uh, are they actually uh, open for their uh, members to see um, the resources are generated and how these resources are, gen- are useful and things like that? So uh, finally, we want to come up with a recommendation as to whether or not religious institutions should not be, um, as it were, um, uh, regulated by themselves, not uh, by government, self-regulation, where they actually have a, a council of elders or council that would look at who qualifies to do what. And if something has gone wrong, this person or this institution would appear before them for advice, for counsel, and for guidance. Now, Prof, so this is what Prof, we to do. Uh, Prof, what has been the reaction from the religious leaders who have been summoned to appear before the council? What is that? What has been the reaction from the religious leaders who have been summoned to appear before the CRL? Well, there are two reactions. uh, The one reaction is that people have come. Some of them have come. And the first one is that because of the system of invitation, which is through someone, they feel uh, agitated by it. They feel that this is not the way to go. They feel that this has undermined them. But we're explaining that within the Act, this is the only route we are able to use, especially because we don't want to give people an opportunity not to appear. The, the someone gives the, the condition, you appear. If you don't, these are the results. So we can't spend state money um, simply dealing with issues that are, are as of serious nature such as this without ensuring that we are prudent in the use of the taxpayers' money. Now, last week, yes. last week, Prof, yes. some of the church members um, were protesting against the hearings, the very same people that this pro- process seeks to protect. Now, what do you make of that? You see, if you don't understand what is happening within the body politics of the church, this is what people would do because they act out of no knowledge at all. But I can tell you that uh, the kinds of things that we have, which will be revealed in the public eye of this country, it will make this country uh, cringe, I can tell you, because there is a lot to be revealed. We have seen this just as yesterday. We have received two complaints, major, major complaints, that are creating a dent in the politics of the church. Of the, of the religious institution. Both um, African traditional across the board is not one group, across the board. And we cannot, as a, um, an institution uh, of chapter 9, set aside to promote democracy and to promote the well-being of our people, sit back and not investigate in a manner we are doing, which is more a friendly, collegial, we are not accusing anybody of anything. What we seek to have is only information. Help us to make a determined um, uh, uh, report which will be sent to Parliament 
and advise Parliament precisely how do we go forward with the proliferation, which is actually going at the heart of undermining the integrity of the Constitution, the integrity of the people of South Africa. Now, Prof, you mentioned that this is basically to work across the board. When you say across the board, can you explain that? Are there plans um, to conduct this type of hearings for other religions, for instance? For for? This, uh, the, the, the CRL, is it only to for? look at, uh, because the feeling of some people is that uh, um, the Christian faith is being targeted. Are there any plans to conduct this type of hearings for other religions as well? We have all the religions coming appearing before us. Yesterday we had Rastafarians appearing before us. And uh, the rabbi was supposed to appear on, uh, on, uh, on the day of the protest. And he had indicated to come, but we asked him not to come because um, of the uh, protest. So there is a goodwill across the board. The African traditional uh, religion will also appear. Um, the Muslim will also appear. Um, the um, um, all I, I can say across the board. The 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 um, the, the Buddhist will also appear. Um, uh, we are not really uh, being selected, so to speak. Now, Prof. Can we just touch on uh, Prophet uh, Baseka Mutsuening, um, who appeared before the commission, I think it's yesterday. Were you satisfied with his submission? No, um, we were not satisfied because the first uh, uh, entry in there was for him to want to understand. Um, I think we engaged him on his understanding. And finally, we agreed with him to set his appearance on the 18th of, uh, of this month at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm not sure it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But uh, we wanted to clarify everything. So that the issue is that we are, we are not really trying to force people or uh, to be seen to be um, uh, adversarial. We want everybody to understand the bigger picture. What uh, is the objective of what we are doing in the interest of South Africa as a whole? And there's no holy cow here. There is no, I, each and every person will, will appear. We had an, at, least, at least again yesterday the appearance of um, a, 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 um, a, a, a team representing a, 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 a church which um, operates uh, from Malawi, it's headquarters, but in South Africa. They, all of them came and gave their evidence. So we engaged them in precisely what are the practices behind what they do. Now, Prof, um, you know, just uh, looking at this, um, um, the council and the hearings, um, you know, it's, 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 why did it get to this point where church congregants were made to drink petrol and eat snakes, where nothing else was done before? Because we've had situations where newspapers and the media has come out revealing what other churches had been doing for some time, but nothing seemed to have been done then up until um, the the video of church congregants drinking petrol and eating snakes went viral. Only up until then, why did it take so long for um, the CRL to sort of say, hang on, Something needs to be done. Um, the CRL Commission is now in its third term. Uh, we had the, the first two terms um, had its different leaders. 
we are a, a new leader almost a year in the in the in, in the business. And as we entered, there were bedrocks in terms of what needs to be um, looked at, uh, recommendations and things like that. You remember, when we do things, we plan them. We just don't do them. And secondly, we also received um, complaints that came to us. And that built up, created an impetus for us to be able to enter this particular thing. And of course, our, our main uh, objective was to look at the commercialization aspect. Because the commercialization aspect feeds into some of these activities. Then secondly, we said we can't just stay on the commercialization because there's this particular issue of abusing people's belief systems. Hence, the two are now combined into one. Now, Prof, in terms in terms of time frames, what sort of time frames are we looking at with regards to the hearings process and um, the recommendations thereafter? Um, what time frames are you working on? Do you have any specifics, or is it going to be a situation of as and when we finalise things? Initially, when we launched the study, um, we had um, placed ourselves. April and May as the period at which we are going to be giving the report. But given the uh, postponements that have come uh, through the request either of lawyers representing religious leaders, this might delay um, the deadline we set for ourselves. But we will work very hard. It could well, it could go into August or September because of this nature of things that are actually happening intervening circumstances which were not for, were not foreseen at the planning stage of this program. Professor David Musomo, thank you so much for joining us and all the best with the hearings. Thank you so much, Lulu. And that was Professor David Musoma, Deputy Chairperson at the Commission for the Promotion and Protection of the Rights of Cultural, Religious and Linguistic Rights. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our economics update up next with Tabisa Lehuku. Thanks, Balungile. Acting Group CEO of multinational telecommunications operator MTN, Putuma Ntleko, is expected to prioritize reducing the over 5.2 billion US dollar fine that Nigerian authorities have imposed in the cell phone operator. The fine follows the company's failure to deactivate more than a million unregistered SIM cards. Nlego, who'd been the non-executive chairperson for the past two years, was given the executive duties following the resignation of Group CEO Sefiso Dapengo on Monday. Nlego had previously served as a director, president and Group CEO of MTN from 2001. Company spokesperson Chris Maruling. 
primary aspect of the discussions that related to Mr. Nsheko's perception of how he would steer MTN out of the situation and more importantly what his key priorities would be in the six months that he had indicated would be his uh, tenure as executive chairperson. Mr. Rebengo has at pains to point out that he was doing this in the interest of the shareholders and the MTN company at large given the difficult situation that MTN had found itself was also the view of the board to confirm Monsheko as executive chairperson in light of the extensive experience that he has at MTN. There are concerns that South Africa's telecommunications provider, Telcom's acquisition of mobile network Celsi, would lead to mass retrenchments. South Africa's biggest fixed line network, for the first time on Monday, confirmed it was in discussions on the possible acquisition of mobile network Celsi. The confirmation comes in a cautionary announcement to Telcom's shareholders. Saudi Arabia's Orga Telecom is Celsi's biggest shareholder with a 75% stake in the mobile network. Jan Vermeulen is from My Broadband. With deals like this, you tend to see retrenchments shortly after as because there's a lot of duplication. In the mobile sector, you could add one could argue for, for uh, a tremendous amount of increased competition. All of a sudden, you'll have three uh, significant mobile phone networks in the country instead of two big ones and two small ones. That would certainly put Vodacom and Telcom um, in direct competition with one another. The United States is putting pressure on South Africa to open its poultry market to U.S. imports by threatening to suspend the benefits that South African agricultural products receive under the African Growth and Opportunity Act, ACOA. Last week, U.S. President Barack Obama threatened to halt certain agricultural products from trade um, within 60 days unless the dispute over U.S. meat imports was resolved. South Africa's Trade and Industry Minister Rob Davies. We said we will not just remove the anti-dumping duty on poultry, because that was the demand initially uh, from members of Congress. Remove the anti-dumping duty in its entirety. Uh, We don't consider it to be legally enforced. We said we consider it to be legally enforced. We said let's agree to disagree about that, and let's negotiate a quota within the anti-dumping duty. We, We would like to see progress. Zambia's Chamber of Mines says that the government's delay in fully resolving the outstanding value-added tax refunds is keeping mining companies under stress. The Chamber's president, Nathan Chisimba, says the better ownership dispute that's erupted over China Copper Mines Limited shows there is need for mining rights administration process to work more effectively and the efficiency has to be visible. The U.S. dollar trades at 14.22 in South Africa, 10.61 in Botswana, 13.19 in Zambia, 0.66 British pounds, 0.92 euro, gold 1093 dollars, platinum 911 dollars an ounce, brand crude oil 47 dollars, 40 cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update, my name is Tabiso Lohoko. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports updates up next with Tommy Guza.
your sport. Thanks for joining us. The South African Bafana Bafana technical team is yet to replace the injured Itu Melenkune after his teammate at Kaiser Chiefs, Brilliant Kuzoyo, is said to be having some family commitments. Bafana will leave on Tuesday morning for the crucial second leg round World Cup qualifier against Angola to be played at the Estadio Nacional de Umbaka in Benguela on Friday. Kuna sustained a knee injury during a training session at Chiefs last week and missed the soil to derby this past week, a game that saw Kuzoyo playing his first official match of the season. Bafana's media officer, Matlomola Morake, sheds more light on the story. So you might have seen a tweet that we sent earlier that Brilliant Kuzo has been called up to replace Itumelan Kune. Unfortunately, due to family commitments, he's not able to join us. So that is why I said earlier, we're still missing one player, the goalkeeper, uh, but the coaches, the coaches are still working on Besides Kune, there's about four players who are also being treated for knocks. The likes of Chiefs duo of Eric Mato and George Lebisi, as well as Pumalanga Black Aces duo of Jackson Mabuhwane and Tabononyane. But the Bafana team doctor Tulani Ngwenya says that all these four players are fine to continue with the team this week. Uh, we've got uh, five players who are injured. The first one is Jackson, but it's not a, a serious injury. He's got a right knee injury sustained during training at Aces and we are treating him, but he's fit to participate. Uh, we also have Lefonolo Nunyana from ACES as well, with a right knee injury and a lower back in, uh, strain. He's also fit to participate. We are managing him. The second leg takes place at the Moses Mapida Stadium in Deben next to Tuesday. And the South African men's under-23 national team are in camp until Saturday the 14th of November as part of their preparations for the Eight Nations Tournament scheduled to run from the 28th of November until the 13th of December in Senegal. Three top nations from the continent will qualify for the 2016 Rio Olympics. Coach Owen Takama has called up 24 players to participate in the local training camp and will play a practice match against Tanzanian men's senior national team on Tuesday at the El Dorado Park Stadium at 4 p.m. Central African time. And as a result of the under-23 camp, coach Dagama will not travel with the senior national team to Angola for their first leg of the World Cup qualifier that will be played in Benguela on Friday. And in rugby, the South African Springbok Sevens rugby squad started their final preparation camp for the upcoming HSBC World Seven Series with a full day of training and planning session on Monday in Stellenbosch. The large training squad that assembles at the Stellenbosch Academy of Sports consisted of several Springboks from the 15-man code who have been including the Blixpocket training squad for the upcoming season. The World Series kicks off in Dubai on December the 4th and 5th and will be followed by the first ever HSBC Cape Town Sevens tournament a week later. And finally, allegations of corruption and covering up doping violations has plunged athletics into deeper crisis. Our UK correspondent, Keshom reports. This has been one of the darkest moments for the athletics movement. It is very much similar to problems affecting World Football Administration, where its president, Sir Blatter, has been forced to step aside pending a thorough investigation and audit. The shattering effect on athletics is the cancellation of the World Athletics Gala, which was supposed to take place in Monaco at the end of this month. The selection process to consider the 2015 World Best Athletes of the Year had already begun. British star athlete Mo Farah and Genezebe Baba of Ethiopia had come out the most popular athletes for the award in a poll conducted through internet voting. 
However, this process is now on hold. The shameful and serious doping violations by the athletes and corruption was uncovered by a German television station and a British newspaper. Geshom Yati, Channel Africa Sports, London. And that's the end of our sports. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, France tables a draft resolution on Burundi at the UN, South African President Jacob Zuma begins state visit to Germany, and Somalia gets more support from the UN as it prepares for elections. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza and Tlaza Maklangu, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or an SMS on 277-969-57930 or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is Yvonne Chaka Chaka with a song titled Motherland.